0: to take your hymn books and turn to 2nd Corinthians, wait for it, oh yeah, you can use your Bibles instead of your hymn book, yeah, Bibles to 2nd Corinthians, here we go, chapter 10, all right, 2nd Corinthians chapter 10, we'll be reading verses 1 through 6, and then we're going to jump to chapter 13, verses 1 through 6. Okay, so we're going to read one through six of ten, one through six of 13, uh, as you'll see the slight connection there, I think. I'll bring out the new King James Version, God's Word declares, Now I, Paul, myself, am pleading with you by the meekness and gentleness of Christ, who in presence am lowly among you, but being absent and bold toward you. But I beg you that when I am present, I may not be bold with that confidence by which I intend to be bold against some who think of us as if we walked according to the flesh. For though we walk in the flesh, we do not walk according to the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not carnal, but mighty in God. For pulling down strongholds, casting down arguments and every high thing that exalts itself against the knowledge of God bringing every thought into captivity to the obedience of Christ and being ready to punish all disobedience when your obedience is fulfilled. Now if you'll turn over to chapter 13. Verse 1 This will be the third time I am coming to you. By the mouth of two or three witnesses, every word shall be established. I have told you before, and foretell as if I were present the second time, and now being absent, I write to those who have sinned before, and to all the rest, that if I come again, I will not spare. Since you seek a proof of Christ speaking in me, who is not weak toward you, but mighty in you. For though he was crucified in weakness, Yet he lives by the power of God. For we also are weak in him. But we shall live with him by the power of God toward you. Examine yourselves as to whether you are in the faith. Test yourselves. Do you not know yourselves that Jesus Christ is in you? Unless indeed you are disqualified. But I trust that you will know that we are not disqualified. Well, this morning... We enter into, really, the beginning of the end of this series in the Corinthians. These last four chapters uh, form uh, largely a unit that we want to handle uh, fairly quickly compared to how long it took us to get through chapter 8 and 9. We're going to see some themes that are going to be repeated. Uh, Paul is going back, really, to the defense of his ministry. And the validity of his message to them, and hence to us. And remember, we've gone through this earlier on in Second Corinthians. We've taken some time away from that uh, to deal with the theology of giving and the grace of God in that area. We now want to return there, and we're going to see Paul speaking in personal terms that uh, only a handful or less of other places in the Scriptures can we really find these kinds of statements by Paul, and we have them extensively provided here for us in these four chapters. But tucked in the middle of these and along the way as we travel this path of the conclusion of Second Corinthians are going to be some very precious passages that uh, unfortunately have been... Uh, Not just neglected, some have been neglected, some others have been abused. And we want to address those as we go, and we'll take our time to do that, but uh, then we'll come to one of those next week right away. Um, But we want to uh, really go through the entirety of Paul's argument fairly quickly to understand what he is trying to uh, communicate to the people and why it was so important that they get... This part of Paul's defense of his faith, uh, defense of his ministry, and defense of his own walk with the Lord. Before we do so now, let's go Lord in prayer. Lord, I would thank you for the opportunity to look in your word this morning for the privilege that is ours to consider its truth. Lord, our prayer is that you might work in our midst, because we are not up to the job, really. We know that. And so we depend upon your Holy Spirit this morning to work not only in our minds to illuminate us to your truth, but in our hearts to convict us of that truth that we might surrender ourselves to it. And Lord, we know that uh, that working of yours is not in the loud, loud, great actions of the storms, but by the stillness of a quiet voice. And so Lord, our prayers that we might be responsive to your gentleness in our life, that we might avoid the seasons of your wrath. Lord, give us such wisdom this morning as we look in your word. In Christ Jesus' name, amen. Well, verses 1 through 3 of 2 Corinthians 10 introduces a theme that we're going to keep visiting. And because we're going to keep visiting it over and over again to the next four chapters, I want to develop it properly. So that I can keep referencing back to this passage as we go through the weeks to come, and you will immediately uh, register in your mind what I'm talking about, that we are talking about the character qualities of ministry in this age (coughs) compared to the age to come. In that age to come, I'm referring to the season called the outpouring of God's wrath, but also the Millennial Kingdom which will be of a different character nature than this one and also stretching out into the end of the Millennial Kingdom where we'll have the end of all things of this earth that will melt in fervent heat those are scary things and they're real um, But we live in an age that we call the Age of Grace And because of that, we have gotten to a point that Israel had gotten to many times in her history, believing that grace equaled weakness and consent. That if God hasn't dealt harshly with me now, that he must be okay with what I'm doing and put aside all the warnings of the future. Because after all, He is a God of love, and grace, and mercy, and goodness, gentleness, meekness. And we're going to see those words used here. And He couldn't possibly do that kind of stuff to His children, or to His creation. Hopefully, we will avoid that foolish line of thinking that still pervades not only the world, but Christianity today, and has for some time. For at least a hundred years, my look at it, um, certainly in the last 60 years, uh, throughout my lifetime, that we have walked away from the full attributes of God and focused only on a handful of them that all make us think that God is a permissive one instead of a righteous judge so we're going to look at these passages, these passages throughout these four chapters and really consider that Paul, in his defense of his role, his ministry, his authority, is really presenting himself as an agent of God. And therefore, as you consider him, you're really considering Christ in him. And he's going to make that statement repeatedly. This isn't about me, this is about Christ in me. But I have to present me to you because of the place that you are at. This is your point of contact with with him. This is your point of reference because you are seeing things in the flesh. And therefore, in my flesh, I have to present these truths. But please understand, these are Christ in me. And you would think that that alone would be substantial enough, but it's not. Because people have repackaged Christ. In such a manner that, as I said, we believe that gentleness equals permission. That meekness equals weakness. That humility means incapacity. And this is error. And this is a fatal mistake. Fatal not just for this age, but fatal for eternity to come. And so the warnings of Paul are very strong and we want to look at them by looking and considering the principle that he's laying down here in the first three verses of 2 Corinthians 10. Let's read them and we'll stop as we go through. Now I, Paul, myself, am pleading with you by the meekness and gentleness of Christ. Not exactly the start of some great authoritarian pounding the pulpit powerful preachers gonna come in and clean their clocks and, and drive sin out of their midst. He starts off identifying himself and saying that we've gotta take some time right now. And I'm whether Paul took up the pen at this point and wrote For himself, rather than using his amanuensis, which is very possible. But Paul now says, I myself am going to do something that we don't associate with authority figures. I'm going to plead with you. He uses the term in verse 2, I'm going to beg you. I beg you. I plead and beg with you. This is not the place of power, is it? In our minds, this is not the place of authority. Authority commands and demands. Authority doesn't plead and beg. At least not in the human sphere, right? That if you carry the authority of the Word of God, you lay it out there, you draw the line, and you say, toe that line, and this is what is, it is, and this is where it's going to stay, and you're going to keep it. Pharisees were good at that. And they heaped them on the people. And woe be if you ever broke their lines that they drew in the sand, or sometimes even in concrete it seemed like. There were repercussions that they would be more than happy to meet out. And more than one Christian was the brunt of that. You see, in our mind, that if you have truth and you have authority and and all these things, that that's how it should should play out. That's what it should look like. It should look like a command and demand, and if you don't meet the command and demand, that you then suffer immediate repercussions from those that will be exemplary to everyone else so that they, in fear and trembling, will cower before your authority and bend the knee. And tyrants have been doing that for millennia. But God doesn't work on that principle. And thus neither should his servants. And Paul, being a follower of Jesus Christ, finding in Christ the temperament of a servant understands that while he holds the authority to demand things of them, and he's already expressed that authority in other areas in 2 Corinthians, but now he comes to them and he says, Listen, I have the authority to lay down the law in front of you and to really uh, press this, but instead, following my Lord's example, I'm going to beg of you. I'm going to plead with you. I'm going to invite you as Christ invites you to take up his yoke, His yoke is easy, his burden light, um, but take it up. You, he invites you to that. I stand at the door and knock, and if anyone hears my voice, I'll come in, commune with them, them with me. He comes not storming in, but he comes gently in. And even as his triumphal entry, we call it, which is kind of funny, uh, because his triumphal entry has not yet happened really fully. That was really the initiation of something that he's going to finish later. Still hasn't. But in his triumphal entry, even there, he quotes that I'm going to be meek and lowly riding on a donkey. This is Christ's pattern. This is Christ's way. And Paul, seeking to reflect that in his ministry and to follow that example, um, demonstrates that he is capable of being very bold. We're going to talk about why that, when that becomes necessary. But he says, listen, uh, ultimately, that will not be effectual for you. I know that's what you expect. And I know you think that. Only if, it, if he comes with this kind of authoritative, uh, sweeping assault on us, really, that that shows he has authority. But that's the wisdom of men. Paul says, that doesn't show my authority. It's not efficacious for you. It doesn't help you. And it is not God's ways. And so he comes, he says, I myself am pleading with you. I beg you that I don't ever have to be bold like I know I'm probably going to have to be. <laughs> Great statement there, verse 2. It says, I intend to come to you and you're looking for a uh, uh, show of strength. You're looking for the exercise of power. Um, as a demonstration that I really mean what I say, that what I say is really truth, that it really applies, that there really are consequences to actions, that all this stuff is real. You want a show of strength. You want boldness. And I am begging you now to listen to this letter that is itself very strong so that I don't have to do that. His whole demeanor here is that, please help me avoid this. Let this letter be the boldest I have to get. And I've written some very strong things, but, you know, everyone knows what a letter means. A letter you can either accept or ignore. You can set aside. You don't have to read it. You don't have to pay attention to it. He's not around. He can't enforce it. so he can be as bold as he wants in a letter, or so what? And then when he gets here, he's all meek and mild. What can he really do? <laughs> what can he really do? We're going to investigate that a little bit here in a moment. If we find him. Say, I don't want to get there. When I come, I want this letter to be the strongest thing, the boldest declarations that you'll ever hear from me. The Word of the Lord. Let the Word be sufficient. Rather than thinking, well, when he comes in his personally, he will back down. Paul says, my intention isn't to do that this time anymore. I'm going to take this. I have the authority to do so. I have chosen not to exercise that when I'm with you. I don't want to have to grieve you. I don't want to have to pain you beyond what you're able. But, you know, I'm praying that these letters would be sufficient. They are strongly worded. They are, by the Holy Spirit's inspiration, they're given to us. And so they have the authority of God behind them. And oh, that that would be enough. And this is the heart of God. This is the heart of the one who sent prophet after prophet after prophet to Israel with message after message after message for not just a year, a month, not just a a season, but for decades some of those guys ministered. To be ignored, to be You know, just blown off, whatever, you know, Jeremiah, you're always negative. You know, we've got some other guys that are telling us stuff we like to hear. Why do you have to keep coming in being this big downer guy? Can you imagine hearing that kind of stuff for 35 years? That's all he heard. Oh, Jeremiah, can someone just kill this guy and get him out of our way? And attempts were made. Put him in the dungeon. Just quiet him up. Because all he keeps telling us is stuff that God's going to do this, God's going to do this. But we know that God is gentle and loving and we're his people. And all these other prophets are telling us that, you know what, you're so special to God. He won't let anything bad happen to you. And Jerusalem is this wonderful place that God won't let anything, and does it sound at all familiar to you? It's a message that's being spoken all over the place these days. And why should we tolerate this one guy who just keeps telling us that God's going to judge us if we don't repent? Um, You know, how we're living is good enough. I mean, we do go to the temple and do our thing and all of this. What's the big deal? Isn't that enough for God? And this went on for decade after decade after decade. From the human experience, we would conclude right along with the rest of Israel. They, yes, God is so patient and loving and good, and, and they tried a couple of little reforms, you know, for, for a little, you know, they the one king tried to, let's just set all of our slaves free. That'll appease God. They set them all free, and then, uh, well, that makes life hard now, so they made, brought them all back. God sends Jeremiah and says, <laughs> Do you think God's happy with that? It just made him more angry. Because now you acknowledge that what you're doing is wrong. You tried to undo it, and then you went right back to that same sin again. Like a dog to its vomit. But you see, it was all based upon a premise that God's gentleness, God's patience, God's meekness Made him someone we could just walk all over. That there would be no end to that. They would go on and on and on and on. And Paul here presents himself in the same way. But he gives clear warning. What I have said in this letter is truth. It is driven by the Holy Spirit, by the word of the Lord, and it must be implemented. And if you won't implement it, and you force me to come and implement it, that will not be a happy time. It is not something to look forward to. It is not something to want after. It is something to avoid. Please avoid it. Please, can't we just determine in our hearts that recognize that as God has worked in the past very patiently, but once that patience is gone, boom! The hammer falls, and it falls harshly. Do you see what he did to Israel? The fields were filled with bodies and no one was going to bury them. Cities were, entire cities were wiped out. Everything that Israel held as valuable or high was destroyed by Nebuchadnezzar. Everything. Everything. Even that temple, if they were sure that God would certainly protect his temple, laid flat. Every article carted off to Babylon. Judah tested the patience of God. God gave them generations, a couple of generations, three generations really of leadership to get things right. And the way he did that was by sending prophets who appeared to have no power. They came gently. They came with a word of the Lord. They came with a message. They came sometimes with a skit. They came naked and destitute. They came in in camel's hair. They came in in lived in holes in the ground. And if you read Hebrews 11, you'll see how they're described, they're abused, they're ignored, they're hunted, they're slaughtered. And from all indications, God can't back up His prophets. And then sudden destruction comes because they didn't listen. Because they confuse gentleness, patience, meekness with an unwillingness to judge. Because somehow it's not in God's nature to really do that. And we hear that extensively. I've heard that all my life, all the way back into the 60s, 1960s. Oh, God is just too loving to do that. Let me share with you how loving God is. Like Paul, he pleads and begs with you today. In the hopes. In the the loving desire that you avoid the day of God's boldness. He wants you to avoid it. And in this age of grace, it to our experience, to our to in, a, in human appearance, it seems like Christianity is weak. It's it's wishy washy. God lets this stuff happen, and we walk around going, "Lord, how can you let this happen? How can you let that happen? How you can you let that happen?" And God's up there saying, "You know, this is not going to." Keep going. There will be an end. But right now, there's a chance. There's an offer out there. And as long as that offer is on the table, and God hasn't removed that, instead of complaining why God hasn't judged all of these things, we ought to be considering and thankful that we have opportunity right now still to respond to His gentle Call. Softly and tenderly, Jesus is calling. Calling today. In that day, he will not call any to repentance. He will call the birds of the air to feast on the flesh of men. That's the call that Christ will have when he comes again on this earth. Frightening, isn't it? Today, he's softly, tenderly, gently, meekly calling. He's begging you, pretty much. Well, is he the King of kings and Lord of lords is begging us to trust in him? Yes. And we have disassociated these qualities from strength. We have failed to see the gentleness and meekness that patience requires incredible strength and power. And it belies something. True gentleness, true meekness, true patience. The power to do that belies something and that is that if they possess the power to really do that, then they have the power to do incredible acts of wrath. Greater the act of gentleness. He speaks the greater power to judge. So Paul comes begging, pleading, please don't make me, but you've already kind of forced my hand in this letter. Don't press the issue so that when I come, and he becomes a great picture of Christ. And so he references that it's the, it's not in my, me again, it's in the meekness and gentleness of Christ. That's why when I'm with you, I'm lowly among you. I'm willing to work and earn a living so that you don't have to pay for my way. I'm willing to not... I surrendered all of my rights and privileges as an apostle for your benefit. I don't bring a spouse with me. I don't expect you to cover all my traveling expenses. I don't have an honorarium requirement. I come to you free of charge. I come to you willing to suffer for your name. I come to you because I care and love and desire for your souls to be saved, delivered, and I will bear all the expense, all the suffering that you might have life. In Thessalonians, Paul describes it there to those people as well. Turn with me really quickly over to First Thessalonians chapter 2. This is how Paul comes, even as Christ came as a servant, that he might suffer all things for us as an agent of God, as a servant of Jesus Christ. Paul emulates that, 1 Thessalonians chapter 2. We'll pick up verse 4. It says, But as we have been approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel, even so we speak. Now it's pleasing men because men want to see power, don't they? They want to see authority. They want to see your muscle. I remember my kids testing that every now and then. They wanted to see just how strong Dad was, and they never found out. Because if they ever did find out how strong Dad was, they'd be broken in little pieces. I'd go to jail, it wouldn't be a happy thing. Trust with God. It's sweet. Now it is pleased men who men, but God who tests our hearts. For neither at any time do we use flattering words, as you know, nor a cloak of covetousness. God is witness. Nor did we seek glory from men, either from you or from others, when we might have made demands as apostles of Christ, but we are gentle among you, just as a nursing mother cherishes her own children. So affectionately longing for you, we are well pleased to impart to you not only the gospel of God, but also our own lives, because you have become dear to us. For you remember, brethren, our labor and toil for laboring night and day, that we might not be a burden to any of you. We preach to you the gospel of God. You are witnesses in God also, devoutly and justly and blamelessly. We behaved ourselves among you who believe. And as you now know now how we exhorted and comforted and charged every one of you, as a father does his own children, that you would walk worthy of God who calls you into his own kingdom and glory. This is how he came to minister with a gentleness that says, I have nothing but your interest at heart, and I will not exert myself to establish my authority over you. Because ultimately, that doesn't help you. And to try to explain that statement, I need to take you into the Millennial Kingdom of Christ. This is an age of grace Where if we respond to God's gentleness, meekness, and patience, His goodness, His grace, His mercy, if we respond today to that, we have deliverance. Now, let's fast forward out of the age of grace, the church age, into the age of the kingdom. And here comes Christ. Now, He looks like what everyone wanted him to look like at the beginning, 2,000 years ago. Now he looks like it. He's riding a white horse. He's got a sword. He's got power. He's got authority. He comes with a rod of iron to the earth. He establishes his kingdom. He reigns over them. That kingdom is described for us in Ezekiel, parts of Jeremiah and Revelation. And we have lots of descriptions of that. And we find that that rod of iron means that everyone must come and worship before Him either in Egypt or in Jerusalem. if they don't, they have famine, they have destruction. They are being forced to worship Him. A lot of Christians still would like that to go on today. But it is not efficacious. It doesn't work. But for a thousand years, this is how it's going to be on the earth you will either worship Christ or die. And the world will bend its knee, but they will not bend their hearts. And after a thousand years of Edenic life, under the personal iron Rule of Christ. Every nation will rebel. Save Jerusalem. Israel. Israel will not. Every nation will join Satan again afresh. Mount up an army called Gog Magog. And will think that they can assault Christ and his people. You see, the millennial age didn't deliver any of them—not a one. So, if you're under the hearing of this message, and you think, "Well, if I can just survive those seven years, of the outpouring of God's wrath, Christ comes down—even if the wrath comes, i miss that. Christ comes down, I go out, and I survive the seven years of wrath and hide in a hole somewhere." Um, and I survive that, and I go into the Millennial Kingdom, um, then I'll be alright. And uh, you will for a thousand years. And then you will rebel. And you will be destroyed. And you will enter into eternal fire. Why? Why? Once God concludes with his grace, there is nothing left but judgment. And so he gives an opportunity. He sends some guy, whitewashed by the acids of a fish's stomach, throws him up on the shore, walks through this giant's town and has a simple... Repent! God's going to destroy the city in three days. Repent! God's going to destroy the city in three days. Repent! God's going to destroy the city in three days. I'm going to sit up there on the hill, and watch it. See you guys later. Ha! Huh, I'll watch you get destroyed. I'm going to sit up there. How gracious God was to Nineveh to send that pathetic guy, Jonah, over to him. Who didn't even want to be there. But he repented. They repented. The king repented. They wouldn't even let their animals eat. They're all going to fast, pray, put on sackcloth. They responded to God's invitation And avoided the judgment. And Israel wouldn't do it. Israel wouldn't respond to his prophets. But Nineveh would. You see if you ignore. His time of grace. If you ignore his gentleness. His meekness. There is nothing left to deliver you. There is only judgment. And that's why during that thousand years. If you are not. Have not. If you're not one of God's chosen ones, if you're not one of His children going in, you are not going to be one going out because when Christ comes with a rod of iron, it is not to save. It is to judge. And the millennial kingdom is always described as something wonderful for Israel, His people. But for the nations, it is simply a deep, in breathing of rebellion that is just waiting its time for Satan to be released. You see, today is the day of salvation. God pleads. He begs. And His agents, His people, His pastors, His teachers, His his followers must similarly portray themselves. We go out there begging for people. To accept him as savior, and we confront God's people, begging them to be righteous. I'm not going to come in, take over your life, and force you to follow him. He doesn't do it. I won't do it. A day will come when he will make that happen. And there will be many tears on that day. But we live in this day, an opportunity. Day of opportunity. For Christ is meek and gentle. Don't think He has no power behind that. He has the power to judge. It's coming. He is meek and gentle and He offers us up and He says, Please, live godly lives. Please, I command you to walk in the Spirit. And yet, we can resist the Spirit. We have the capacity to do that. And it looks like the spirit is weak, but it's not. He's powerful. He's the all-powerful one. And yet, he humbly allows us to decide whether we're going to walk with him or away from him. And it confounds me. But all the way from Genesis through, God has established this principle. The principle is one of gentleness and of kindness for a patient duration whereby we can have deliverance, where we can choose to respond to that. But if we choose not to respond to that, All that is left then for us because we have rejected his love, his goodness, his mercy, his grace, his meekness, his gentleness, we have rejected all that, his long suffering, because we've rejected all of that of who he is, of his character. There is only one thing left it's his judgment, it's death, it's severity. And Paul, following his master's steps, says, "Don't think, because my last two visits I was gently with you. Don't think that because of our history, the historical experience that you've had so far, that I don't have the power to come to you with judgment." He can. What kind of judgment can a guy like this do? Well, let's think back historically. Let's think back to um, a couple of people that come in with an offering and misrepresent it and drop dead in front of Peter. Let's talk about a guy that says, I want to buy the abilities that you have. And the statement is, may you and your parish with your money. The guy goes out screaming, fearful. Let's back up even farther out of the New Testament and get into a day when the prophets' powers were very evident and yet they were gentle. We're going to stop the rain for a few years. Did that get your attention? No? Rebellion. You see, Elijah came with a message and it was rejected, and then came the judgment and it didn't deliver. condemned. And of course, one of my favorite ones was when Elisha was confronted with some children. Go up, you bald head. Go up, you bald head. Go up, you bald head. And all it took was a word. And they were eaten by a bear. Paul says, I have authority. I have power. I can come in boldness but it's not going to deliver you. It's only going to condemn you. And so, let's avoid all that by you responding to a letter. Responding to the gentleness and meekness that you've seen in me in the past that I poured my life out on your behalf. You can either throw it away and throw it back in my face and curse my name, or you can respond by repentance and fruits of righteousness in your life. And that is Paul's declaration. He's not going to force righteousness on anyone because he can't. God doesn't force righteousness on anyone because it never delivers. It never redeems. It always condemns. God forces us to be righteous. We are in a state Of judgment, the invitation to be righteous is his grace, his mercy, his gentleness, his meekness, and Paul's statement here is very clear. Um, You always want something fleshly, and I'm offering something spiritual. We don't walk according to the principles of flesh. We are in the flesh, but we are functioning according to a different principle. And that principle is that God, by holding back the exercise of his judicial power, is granting us the privileged opportunity to respond by faith to be delivered. You can sit here and deny... Judicial power, and you would be fools to think that somehow you're going to get away with it because God will put up with it, He'll just have to forgive me. He has set the prerequisites for forgiveness, and they involve repentance, turning 180 degrees from one way to another way, from rushing headlong into hell and sin to rushing headlong into heaven and righteousness. The invitation is there. He won't force your hand. For the day of enforced righteousness is the day of judgment, not of salvation. So we go out with the capacity to exercise our authority, but it doesn't help anyone. Or we can go out with meekness, humility, gentleness, patience, goodness, and love, kindness, and offer to the world power of the resurrection. And we, within the church, we can offer it. We can sit there and offer, but we cannot demand it. We cannot force it. We can offer it in ministry. And Paul says, I'm offering my ministry to you. Will you be righteous enough to accept it by faith instead of waiting for it to be forced on you by power? Will you be wise enough Respond to gentleness, a gentle word of rebuke, of correction, of instruction, even in the form of a letter. Will you be wise enough to respond to that so we can avoid the show of force? You don't want to see the show of God's force. None of us do. Let's so have the wisdom to respond today. To a gentle Savior who softly and tenderly calls us to righteousness. Let's pray. Lord God, we do thank you for your love for us. And Lord, we see your gentle hand. That you are willing to suffer everything for us. And Lord, the incredible power. That you showed of self-control to allow sinners a free hand to execute you, to abuse you. And Lord, we know you could have called all power of heaven to come and judge that day, but you. Humbly died in our place. Lord, we can't cease to give praise to you, for we are the benefactors of your grace, your goodness, your meekness, your gentleness, your long suffering. Lord, our prayers that we might be responsive today to every invitation that you give us by your Spirit and your people and your word to live justly. Righteously, holy as you are holy. Lord, I pray you might find within us a wisdom to respond to your quiet voice today, that we might avoid the harshness of your shouts. In the day of judgment. Christ Jesus' name.